It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. And more students in North Carolina face repeating a grade than any time in the past century. That's according to David Stigall, the Deputy Superintendent of Innovation at the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction. This is a story at the Carolina Journal by Julie Havlick, who says uh, remote learning is failing North Carolina students. Roughly 19% of students are not attending classes regularly. State officials predict fewer students would graduate or advance to the next grade. Republican lawmakers are slamming remote learning as a disaster and a wasted year. They grilled leaders of the State Board of Education during a meeting of the Joint Legislative Education Oversight Committee. We'll get into this. Plus, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals overturns a lower court uh, judge's ruling against North Carolina's voter ID law. Uh, First, I'd like to ID some of the great folks that make the show possible. My patrons, such as Mary, Joshua, Christian, Stephanie, Casey, and uh, Matthew, Celia, Theodore, Elizabeth, Sarah, and Josh. Thanks so much for the support. I couldn't do the show without you guys. Um, you can become a patron as well just by going to the com and clicking on the link that's up at the top there. Today's show is presented by General Equipment Rental. Did you know that they were voted best equipment rental store for the second straight year in the Mountain Express Reader's Poll? It's true. Um, people know them and love them and know that they're great. And so head on over to General Equipment Rental for any of your projects. Um If you don't have the tool for the project you're trying to do, uh, it's going to take you longer. It's probably going to lead to mess ups, you know, and mistakes. It's just it's not worth it. I remember I trimmed out um, like a 900 square foot house uh, with a handsaw. (laughs) This was about 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, doing like crown moldings and everything. That was not fun. If I had. If I had known about General Equipment Rental, well, and I was uh, living down in Charlotte at the time, so uh, I could not go to General Equipment Rental. But um, now I know, like, just go ahead and get a saw, just rent a saw from General Equipment Rental, and it would have taken me so much less time. You can also pick up one of their cool Husqvarna auto mowers, 10% off while supplies last. Uh, This thing drives around your yard, and it runs silently day and night, and it keeps the grass cut evenly all the time. And you pair it up with the Auto Mower Connect app, and it's going to map your yard. And then you could check in with it from work or when you're away just to see how it's doing. You know, it becomes like a pet. It's like a part of the family. Um, If anybody tries to steal it, it shuts down as soon as it breaks containment out of the yard perimeter. And then it has a GPS locator on it so you can track down the thief immediately. That's what the technology gets you. What a great gift idea for the person in your life that hates mowing yards but has to do it. Uh, I'm not saying it's me. I don't even have a yard right now. <laughs> but it's not that I hated mowing yard. I just thought there were so many other things I could spend my time doing. You know, like reading Twitter, for example. That's just way more productive. Um, <laughs> so head on over to General Equipment Rental there in Weaverville at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. Family owned and operated for three generations. GeneralRents.com is the website. GeneralRents.com. And think outside your toolbox. Joining me now is Christian Bernard. He is the Education Policy Analyst at Reason Foundation. He's also a senior contributor with Young Voices, and you can follow him on Twitter at CBernard33. Uh, Welcome to the show, Christian. How are you? Hey, Pete. Good. How are you? I'm doing well. So um, you wrote a piece in the Washington Times uh, uh, a couple weeks ago titled, Could the COVID-19 New Normal in Education be good for boys. And so as I followed your logic here, uh, essentially it's, you know, COVID led to restrictions, restrictions led to homeschooling, more homeschooling, and that has prompted new pedagogies, basically. Uh, And hey, while we're doing these new methods of learning, why don't we focus on boys? Is that about it? Yeah, roughly. I mean, I think I'm just asking the question about, you know, if 
some of these pandemic related adjustments have started to get people thinking about different learning models that might benefit boys. So, I mean, I want every student to be kept in mind as we think about what the future of education will look like even after the pandemic. But the reason I kind of took aim specifically at boys is because we now know that they've been falling behind their female peers for you know, a sustained period of, of decades now. So we now have evidence that uh, not only are, are females outperforming males in, in reading significantly in standardized tests or around ELA and reading, but now they've closed the achievement gap on math. And when you actually look at the grades, so not just the standardized tests, but the grades that girls are earning in school, they basically unilaterally outperform boys at on all subjects on all grade levels they enroll in college at higher rates they graduate from college at higher rates boys are more likely to get diagnosed with a disability i mean so when i look at all these disparate outcomes i'm just kind of proposing a question of hey as disruptive and in many ways ineffective as this temporary remote learning has been are there kind of some practices that we can refine and carry forward and, you know, kind of introduce more systematically into the education system that might help boys make up some lost ground here? So, yeah, and I think in order to sort of understand where you're uh, suggesting we might want to go, we need to look at where we've been. And, and part of that is this widening gap in performance between boys and girls. And I, I was covering school board meetings 20 years ago in Charlotte, and I remember people raising these concerns at that time that there was just the beginning of this sort of opening up mm-hmm. of an achievement gap there. And at the time, though, there was a lot of focus on getting girls uh, on par with boys. So what happened? When did that when did that switch? Do you know? And why did it switch? Yeah, that is a great question. And I think it's good that we were focused on closing those achievement gaps. Um, I think that it probably corresponds with the increasing standardization of the education system, um, as well as I think just some generally more conscientiousness towards um, making sure girls are encouraged to, to work hard as students and kind of change social changes that have been good for, you know, gender equality. But um, I think that this, what the, the beginning of that gap and the progressive widening of it um, probably started as we started to standardize the education system more. I mean, so this really got going under Reagan when we started to see reports about um, really just the kind of poor state of the education system. And that's when, standardized testing started to really get introduced some more rules around learning standards um that's when we started putting a lot more money into the system um and then the era kind of unfolded into um kind of the no child left behind era in the early 2000s where under the bush administration you know every state education system was seriously affected by federal policy because we really were starting to try to hold Uh, students to higher standards. And then that got into teaching to the test and uh, teachers really not being able to accommodate different kinds of students the same way because they had to just kind of get through the curriculum, get everyone ready for the test. So, I mean, that's my theory about, you know, some of the education policy reasons why this gap might have widened. But I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are, there are plenty of others too. I mean, another one could be that We've become a lot more aware of special education. So special education um, diagnosis diagnosis rates have gone up considerably over the last couple decades. And we know that boys are disproportionately more likely to be put, you know, to be diagnosed as having some kind of learning disability. And so maybe as we started to diagnose more kids as, you know, having some kind of learning issue, uh, we weren't holding them to the same standards, and then that contributed to more widening. So th- those are a couple of theories that I think probably have some merit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've always wondered, like, are, is this is it the school setting and the way we teach, is that 
prompting more of the ADD and ADHD diagnoses, uh, or do those diagnoses yeah. come first? You know, like I, 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 I'm, ne- I'm <laughs> never actually sure. Kind of thing. Yeah, pretty much because I, I I find it remarkable that there are such wide gaps between the diagnosis level in boys versus girls. I remember uh, I went to go cover, uh, there was a governor in South Carolina and he went to a a school for, you know, photo op and I got there late. And so I'm sitting in the office and I'm waiting on one of his uh, security details to come get me and bring me to the classroom. And I just happened to be there at the time when all the boys come in lined up to get their Ritalin or whatever the drug was. (laughs) And it's a line around the, uh, you know, out the door, down the hallway. And they just come in, they give their name, and they get a pill, they take it, and then they have you know check the mouth to make sure they swallowed it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, is this are there really this many kids that have learning disabilities like this, or is there something else going on here? Is it that they're like incredibly bored because of the format? I don't know. Right. You know, there are there's some science in here. So I mean, boys' brains develop more slowly. We know that. And I think a lot of these students are diagnosed with these issues pretty early on. And I think part of that is just due to the fact that you see young boys who do not have the same level of attention span as their female peers. So I think that part of the reason that you might be seeing boys more diagnosed is because there's a real juxtaposition, especially at younger, at the elementary level with their female peers. They just seem like they can't keep up. So I think part of it is just that it is the format because, uh, I mean, the way I look at it is the education system is really, at least in K-12, is really run by by women. Yeah. Right. So about 77 percent of all teachers are uh, female. Then when you look at the elementary level. Um, it's 90% of teachers that are female. So in in my view, it's not really surprising that you see the format might kind of play to female strengths. Um, But also there's a theory that really boys are more likely to get diagnosed with some of these disabilities because they, the symptoms are more visible. They manifest more often in kind of hyperactivity or easy distraction. They say with girls, young girls who might have some of these um, kind of similar learning disabilities, the symptoms don't manifest the same way. They're, they're still more quiet. Um, and so some academics think that actually they should be ideally uh, the sample size of, you know, having ADHD or dyslexia should be about the same in girl and boy populations. But, you know, the <laughs> boys, it's a little bit more obvious, I hmm. guess, is kind of the argument. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So there, uh, uh, your comments there about the female uh, personnel in K-12 education reminds me, I spoke with a, a education reformer. He's an African-American guy. He's a former Democratic politician in North Carolina. He's a huge school mm-hmm. choice guy. And one of the things that, you know, he, he criticizes his own party for basically is that, uh, you know, they don't recognize that there is a difference, you know, in the, the teaching staff that, you know, maybe black boys would benefit from having black men as teachers and they they don't really see that in the classroom yeah oh big time so the gender gap in terms of what teaching populations look like is one thing the racial gap very very present as well and so yeah i think the argument applies in both cases and i like that yeah the line there at least by that particular person is being connected to giving kids more choice mm-hmm. i mean that's a big thing i support myself is you know some of the um my hopes for how the education system will look like after the pandemic is that more kids will ha- or families will have a better understanding of the other options that are out there that the barriers to them accessing these other schooling options are out there but also I'm hoping that we actually see the options uh, diversify a little bit. I mean, right now, still the prevailing education model is really kind of the same. If you go to a private school, a charter school or a district school, usually you're sitting down in a classroom. It's a teacher led lesson. Um, There's going to be some kind of testing. Every kid's going to kind of be assumes to have to work at the same pace. I mean, so in my view, there's actually a lot of, you know, undercapitalized options at this point. And 
I hope moving forward that families will be more aware of the options and get more options, but that you'll actually see some more innovation in how learning is being delivered. That's kind of my hope for how to close this achievement gap between boys and girls in K-12. More with Christian in a minute. First, if you are a teacher, an educator, did you know that you can keep 25% of the realtor commissions when you buy or sell your house? You can if you are using Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team because they are the only official Homes for Heroes real estate agents in Asheville. And this is a program that gives buyers and sellers 25% back from realtor commissions. This goes to not just educators, but also police officers, firefighters, healthcare professionals, and members of the military, veterans, active duty, and retirees. And she's given back about $800,000 so far to local folks in those professions. She outsells 99% of the realtors in the state of North Carolina. She will get your house sold quickly and for more money. If you're looking for a house, she has homes in all price points. Give her a call at 333 4483 or go to the website mountainhomehunt.com and start packing. I'm talking with Christian Bernard. He is an education policy analyst at Reason Foundation and a senior contributor with Young Voices. Um, and he's got a uh, an op-ed that ran in the Washington Times titled, Could the COVID-19 New Normal in Education Be Good for Boys? And uh, far be it for me to suggest that all we're doing is complaining. You offer some solutions, <laughs> as you started uh, <clears throat> to mention earlier, that uh, and you go through some of these like changing grading policies, recruiting more male teachers, more interactive classrooms, um, mm-hmm. competency-based learning, technology-driven teaching, hands-on experimentation. Um, <laughs> I was hopeful that, well, let me, let me, let me say this way, when, when the pandemic hit, the uh, it, it became very obvious to me what we had lost by not pursuing school choice earlier in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I think we would have been way better and the kids would have been way better off had we done so uh, much earlier. There have been way more options. Um, but there's a there's a pretty powerful constituency against that idea, against school choice. And so uh, I, I wonder, do you think that people are interested in looking at these types of solutions in the wake of the pandemic, if we come out, everybody gets vaccinated, whatever, um, that mm-hmm. do you think or do you think it's just much easier to say, oh, thank goodness, let's go back to the way it was? Well, yeah, you know, I think that there are reasons to think that maybe the support that wasn't there already for school choice or kind of more family empowerment. I think there are reasons to think that that is built. So there are some surveys showing declining uh, parental satisfaction with their current school. And that's mostly related to how they've handled kind of the the virtual learning. Um, I think the other thing um, that might be playing to the favor of more support for, for choice is that parents are getting to observe the differences in learning styles in their own kids in real time. It's actually kind of an interesting moment where your parents are, you know, not all of them are at home, but I'm sure most parents to some degree have seen their kids log on to Zoom, and maybe they've seen one kid who's really <clears throat> flourishing you know, or doing well with it, and another child who just really is struggling to with being distracted, with motivation, with any kind of accountability. And I think what that's going to do for a lot of parents and is make them think, wow, there, I can see these different learners, learning styles manifesting in front of me in real time. I, I wish we had a system that was more accommodating for these different types of kids. So that's another reason I think you'll have um, maybe growing support for school choice. So the disf- dissatisfaction with how things are being handled during the pandemic, the lack of options. I mean, families also just generally feel powerless. If teachers really um, aren't doing much for their kids, you know, have, if they haven't done much for their kids this year, a lot of families have felt like they've had few other options. I mean, mm-hmm. if they can't afford to homeschool, they can't afford to make a pandemic pod or whatever. Um, all these things should be pushing, I think, the, the public kind of more in the direction of supporting school choice. Uh, you mentioned competency-based <clears throat> learning as, uh, as, a, as an approach to be embraced. What exactly does that mean, competency-based <laughs> learning? Yes. So this, I mean, this is something that the academics have been talking about for a while, especially actually in higher education. The idea in competency-based education is that rather than having every kid 
work at the same pace. Okay, we're going to do one unit on, you know, the Pythagorean theorem or something like that. And then after a set amount of time, however you do on the test after that unit, we're all moving on. Hmm. The idea of competency-based learning is to say no. Kids are going to not, they're not going to advance from one unit until they actually have demonstrated competency in that area. And so the idea here is to actually have some differentiation in the pace at which kids are working. Um, and there, are, there have been some experiments in the United States with this model, um, but it's really, it really hasn't been scaled yet. And I think that the reason the pandemic might prompt more conversations here is because a lot of kids are getting their virtual instruction right now, like asynchronously. So like not in real time, all the units are posted and, or, or a lecture is posted. The kid watches it, they do some assignment. And I think that might be laying the groundwork for more talk about letting kids work at their own pace. So that, yeah. So the kids who are able to push ahead, they can do so, but also the kids who need more time, they aren't falling behind. They're working at a pace that is reasonable for them. Um, so, I mean, that's the hope. That That's one uh, promising model um, for how things can get better after the pandemic, competency-based education. Yeah, it it is pretty amazing at the durability of the current K-12 model how you know how long it has been essentially unchanged <laughs> and uh yeah. you know, built around sort of this factory model idea that oh well a kid is born and so you know here's set your clock five years he goes to kindergarten mm-hmm. and then after a year of kindergarten he or she is you know uh completely at the same level as every other person that's six years old and then seven years old and eight years old it, it always struck me mm-hmm. as kind of an odd model and and what's and particularly when it doesn't work for some kids, but there's this attachment that people have. And, and you know, probably a lot of it is because they have fond memories of their own K-12, uh, yeah. you know, time. And so they, they want that for their kids as well. Um, but I think that, yeah, like you said, the pandemic, it, it has exposed the, the shortcomings of that system uh, for mm-hmm. a lot of kids. And I think parents are now kind of realizing how much of their lives have been centered around the k-12 government school right like from where they live yeah from where they have their job you know what what days they could take off for vacation like yeah everything is around the k-12 school yeah it's a highly high and like i said it's been increasingly standardized you know the fact that it's determined by zip code is already kind of peculiar but the funny thing is if you go from one zip code to another and you look at how classrooms are being run it's like well it kind of it all looks very similar, even if you have different populations of students. And so, yeah, I think people are maybe kind of irrationally wedded to that system. But listen, I mean, the, the reason that I, I kind of want to push people to rethink that, that kind of assumption that this is the only and best way to do it is because, I mean, so for example, my, my older brother has ADHD. He, he struggled a lot in school. And um, when... Kids who who struggle in school, who are constantly being told that they need to behave better, they need to catch up, that they're falling behind, that why can't they be like their more kind of self-disciplined peers? That has a real profound social effect on a lot of these kids, especially the boys who are left behind. Hmm. And so the reason I want to push families to rethink this is because, you know, we need to validate these kids who are just still growing up, that they're still developing their brains that are developing their own personalities. It's important that they don't feel like they're the system is constantly trying to make them something different than they are. I mean, it's good to teach them self-discipline and uh, motivation and all of that, but fundamentally, you know, you should embrace that kids have different learning styles and that the system can't be so overly standard. Uh, the way I see it, if the system is really overly standardized, inevitably, it's going to favor some kinds of learners over others. I mean, that's just how it's going to happen. I mean, if it's all kind of being done one way and kids are different, there's going to be some kids that are going to do well and some kids not as well. So um, I think the social effects on these kids and their development and their self-esteem um, are are pretty profound in that, that that's why we should really be thinking carefully about how the system can be opened up a little bit and that lo- new learning models can be explored. 
Christian Bernard, education policy analyst at the Reason Foundation and a senior contributor with Young Voices. You can find his work at the Washington Times that we've been discussing. Could the COVID-19 new normal in education be good for boys? Thanks for your time today, Christian. I do appreciate it. I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, Pete, thank you. Have a good day. You too. Take care. All right. If you were listening to the show yesterday, then you heard that I forgot to take my CBD oil drops before I went to bed, and it meant that I kept waking up um, just because my mind doesn't shut down. It never has. My whole life, I was a very, I've been a very light sleeper. Uh, but when I started taking Growers Hemp Full Spectrum Hemp Extract, then uh, I sleep deeply. Like I sleep when I go to sleep and I'm out and I don't keep waking up because my brain doesn't shut off. So what are you looking for? Have you ever tried CBD oil? Well, Growers Hemp is the only CBD product I've ever used, and uh, I recommend them to you if you're looking for, uh, you know, deep sleep, but also, you know, better quality of life, a balanced state of mind, immune system resilience. People take CBD oil for all sorts of reasons, and uh, they have uh, Growers Hemp as topicals, like balms and salves. They've got lozenges as well. So they've got all sorts of delivery mechanisms and flavors, too, for the CBD uh, drops themselves. So... Uh, Give them a shot. If you haven't tried CBD, they want to help you on your wellness journey. These are North Carolina farmers, family farms uh, east of Charlotte, but they've uh, you know they've got a lot of farmers from around the state that have now gotten involved in their business. They control the whole process from seed all the way to shelf, uh, shelf rather, and that means you get uh, better quality and lower prices. As with all CBD products, GovCo requires me to say this. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And nothing I have said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. Check out their ad. It's at the uh, Our State Magazine. Also, you can find it on the shelves at Broad River Hemp Company in Shelby, Medical Pharmacy in Locust, Durham's Co-op. Uh, you can also go to the website. I recommend this. You can peruse all of the products, but also, more importantly, get 20% off when you use the promo code PETE. The website is growershemp.com. That's growershemp.com, promo code PETE, from North Carolina farmers to your home. Growers Hemp is about the hemp and not the hype. So nine months after Governor Roy Cooper closed schools to full-time in-person instruction, a little bit more than a third of students remain in a completely virtual format. This is according to the Carolina Journal that says on a given day, only 48% of students actually sit in a classroom. Republicans pushed to return children to the classroom. They repeatedly pointed to Europe, where governments kept schools open despite rising case counts and economic lockdowns. Cooper spared only private schools, allowing colleges, universities, and other private schools to open long before public schools did. Cooper only reopened public schools in July, he permitted elementary schools to return to full in-person learning back in September. I saw a quote from a, a North Carolina lefty teacher, does a lot of organizing and stuff for Democrats. His name is Justin Parmeter, I believe. And he writes a blog. Anyway, he was like, he's a teacher. And he says, you know, teachers, we go to we go to work now wondering, is this the day I'm going to get COVID? Uh-huh. Yeah. A lot of people are wondering that when they go to their jobs too, Justin. This is the thing that always kills me about folks like this. It's like, do you realize there are people that have been working for the last 10 months during this pandemic while you've been staying home? This, this, I, I really am coming around to this idea that there is this lockdown privilege or quarantine privilege. There are people who can afford to, quote, work from home, which that's another thing, too. There are a lot of people, apparently I'm doing this wrong. I'm working more now than I ever have before, like more hours in a day. I wake up, I work. And then Christy comes home, we eat lunch, and then she goes back to work, and then I keep working, and then she comes home, and we have dinner, and then uh, we may watch a TV show when I go to bed. That's my day, every day, except on Thursdays when I do the live stream, which, by the way, you can participate in by becoming a patron of the program at thepetecalendarshow.com. Anyway, uh, the idea that you can work from home, and there are a lot of people, There, I have a, I have a, a friend of the family, he's a relative of my it doesn't matter. He's a friend of the family. And he says that he, he goes into people's homes. He's been doing a lot of contract work in people's homes. And he says that he sees them like he's doing a project in people's homes for three, four weeks or something. And he sees them as they, quote, work from home. 
and they're not really working <laughs> most of the day. Like they do not spend a lot of their time being productive. So I am curious as to what happens when everybody kind of returns to the office, you know, in the after COVID is behind us. Um, I, I am kind of curious what happens to the productivity levels and such. But this idea, this guy, Justin Parmeter expressed that, oh, you know, teachers are worried about getting COVID every day they go to work. You mean like everybody else in society? It goes to goes to this saying, this this observation, I should say, that another uh, this was a family member pointed out to me years and years ago. They said, uh, and they said they would deny it if I ever identified who said it, so I'm not saying it. Uh, they said, teachers don't want regular jobs. They want better jobs than everybody else. <laughs> Which, like, this is why a lot of this stuff falls on deaf ears. I'm not sure teachers realize this. We respect the work they do and applaud them for doing it and appreciate it and all that. But, you know, holding yourself out as if what you're doing is unique. Like, oh, my gosh, I got to go to work in, in during a pandemic. You know, I should be able to just stay home and have people deliver all of my food to me. Well, you're making them work for you. <laughs> so I don't. <clears throat> anyway, I digress. The Brookings Institute had a analysis here, uh, an analysis that looked at the long term effects of COVID-19 on schools. Here was their uh, their conclusion. Basically, the long term effects are still unknown. Yes. But in some ways, they say our findings show an optimistic picture in reading. On average, the achievement percentiles of students in fall 2020 were similar to those of same grade students in fall of 2019. And in almost all grades, most students made some learning gains since the pandemic began. In math, however, the results tell a less rosy story. Student achievement was lower than the pre-pandemic performance. Um, students showed lower growth in math across grades three through eight relative to peers in the previous more typical school year. That that shouldn't really be a massive surprise to anybody, right? That people are kind of able to keep up with the reading and the writing side of things, but not so much on the uh, on the math side. You kind of need <laughs> more instruction. And let's be honest, most parents are not really equipped <laughs> to to do some of the math instruction um, and, and help with that. That's always been the case, by the way. That has always been the case. And that usually prompts the kid to say, well, I don't even need this. I mean, if you don't know it, what am I going to use this in life? And parents are like, that's a fair point. <laughs> Now, that's not to say math isn't important. Math is very important. I am not knocking math for all of the mathophiles out there. Um, all right, let me shift gears here. The U.S. Court of Appeals Fourth Circuit has uh, smacked down a lower court judge. I'm amazed it took this long. Seriously. A federal judge, this is the AP, a federal judge wrongly blocked North Carolina's latest photo voter identification law. That, according to an appeals court ruling, deciding that the judge erred when declaring the requirement was tainted by racial bias because a previous voter ID law had been struck down on similar grounds. Okay, so that was uh, a little bit of history here. So, North Carolina General Assembly passed a voter ID law after Republicans took over. They they pushed it and threw a, a voter ID law. They got sued over it. And the court said, uh, well, this was uh, you, you did this because you looked at uh, racial identification when you did this. Um, and the Republicans said, well, no, we were looking at uh voting habits and stuff. And that because there was discussion of race, uh, this then prompted the law to be struck down. Okay. So then you got the judge who says, well, you have this new law that came about and the new law, because some of you uh, Republicans were there, you know, years ago, uh, the new law is also tainted because of you, because of you guys, you're still in the legislature and you still did this law. And the unanimous opinion by the fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals panel reversed a December 2019 preliminary injunction. Think about that. We're a year. This woman, this judge made a ruling a year ago, and it's just now been struck down. Loretta Biggs was the district court judge's name uh, or is her name. And um, this does not mean the AP says it does not mean that the voter ID requirement can now be carried out. But the decision improves the position of Republican lawmakers who for years have sought IDs for voting to which uh, to require it for the 2022 elections. Biggs's ruling 
the judge, Loretta Biggs, uh, her ruling had essentially blocked the ID requirement for this past election, which was, of course, the entire point, right? That was the point, was to block it for 2020 because of the census and the redistricting, right? That that was the purpose. Uh, but little did we know there was going to be a pandemic in December 2019. Yay. And that means the Democrats instead went about litigating their way uh, through the courts to try and create as many opportunities as possible to affect the counting of the ballots after the fact. I, you, you'll never convince me. I don't think that. Um, well, I shouldn't say never. There, there may be some compelling evidence that presents itself, but uh, I'm not counting on it. I don't think you'll ever be able to convince me that the purpose of all of the litigation that Democrats filed 400 plus lawsuits across America uh, in the months before the election all of that was designed to uh, to till the field, you know, essentially for the lawsuits to come after losses. I think they were so uh, intent on, you know, making sure that they could challenge a Trump victory in any way they needed to, that they made all of these lawsuits. They filed all these lawsuits that, yes, relaxed a lot of the election integrity measures. And uh, that was the first, you know, that that's the first intention. But then, of course, the second intention is that even if you lose these things and you don't get them, you can then come back after the election and say, aha, see, uh, we you know, we tried to prevent this from happening and all these people couldn't vote because of the pandemic. Uh, of course, nobody predicted that there would be record voter turnout. And so all of that. All of those plans kind of went by the wayside. And also they didn't need them. You know, they didn't need to file the suits after the fact because Biden had won. And I don't think you can uh, you can legitimately and believably credibly make a case that uh, that people were disenfranchised from voting. And by the way, do you know how many states have voter ID now? It's like 30. Yeah. So the idea that everybody got disenfranchised by voter ID laws is absurd. It's just absurd. And at some point, it's going to be so obviously absurd that even the left will uh, will recognize it. I'm holding out hope. I am holding out hope. Um, let's see here. According to the AP, trials are still expected before Biggs, the district court judge, and in state court this coming year uh, because there are separate lawsuits challenging the law implementing the 2018 amendment to the state constitution that required the use of photo ID. Uh, a state appeals court ruling that blocked the ID requirement from being imposed still remains in place. So, we, we're not sure when we're going to get voter ID, even though we all approved it. Fifty five percent of the voters went out, supported it, which, by the way, was cited as a reason why the lower court judge's decision was kind of B.S. <laughs> um, here's what Circuit Judge Julius Richardson on the Court of Appeals said. The outcome hinges on the answer to a simple question. How much does the past matter? A legislature's past acts do not condemn the acts of a later legislature, which we must presume acts in good faith. He said that the lower court judge's injunction has to be overturned because, quote, of the fundamental legal errors that permeate the opinion and irrevo uh, irrevocably affected its outcome. So that's a that, that's a that's a pretty strongly worded smackdown for that judge. Uh, Biggs wrote last December that many of the same GOP leaders and lawmakers who passed the original voter ID law were in the legislature five years prior when they wrote that law that had been struck down. And uh, they had gotten data that broke down voter behavior by race, which I think is interesting because you don't even I mean, do we really need that data? At the time, it was like 90 percent plus of African-Americans vote Democrat. So is that really surprising? But this was used as proof that they were trying to prevent black people from voting, which black people, by the way, support voter ID as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> this idea that like universally voter ID is popular among all demographic groups, but you would never know it by listening to uh, the Democratic Party. The judge suggested that racial data was still in the minds of many legislators in 2018 when they did the second law. So she was she's a mind reader, too. She knew that this data was still in their brains. <laughs> uh, put this into your brain. Old Grouch's military surplus. 
oldgrouch.com. Old Grouch is military surplus on Main Street in downtown Clyde for three decades, actually more than three decades. You want real U.S. military surplus? How about some cold weather gear and clothing? Okay. Uh, did the snow convince you that your uh, cold weather wardrobe needs some updating and additions? Old Grouch has got wool sweaters, military field jackets in solid green and camo, wool fleece, uh, or sorry, wool and fleece toboggans and wool socks and Gore-Tex jackets. They got it all, okay? And you're going to get them a lot cheaper than you find them at the big box outdoor stores, okay? Go to Old Grouch's Military Surplus, downtown Clyde on Main Street. It's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. The shop is open Monday through Saturday and at oldgrouch.com. It's also a great place, by the way, to pick up uh, Christmas presents for the hard-to-shop-for person in your life. Um, let's see here. Richardson, the, uh, the Court of Appeals judge, pointed out that the legislation received votes from a handful of Democrats um, in the legislature. The second, the second bill, the one that was being litigated here, it actually got Democratic votes. And it was actually run as one of the sponsors. Uh, Joel Ford is a black Democrat. He actually was a co-sponsor of the bill. He helped run the bill. Um, he also pointed out that the voter ID law in North Carolina uh, is more protective of the right to vote than other states' voter ID laws that courts have approved. See, there, there's no reason, there's no legitimate legal reason at this point why we can't have voter ID, and particularly when the law that we have uh, allows for way more forms of ID than other states that their laws have passed constitutional muster so like we've made our law more lax more lenient more liberal more progressive dare i say the republican lawmakers made their laws more progressive than other states that had those laws challenged the more restrictive laws challenged and had them upheld there's no reason why we can't have voter id any longer except for politics more than 30 states right now require some form of voter id here are some excerpts that the uh, uh, Senate, the state Senate leader, Phil Berger, his office sent out some of these excerpts from the uh, the Fourth Circuit's ruling. Uh, quote, these district court decision errors fatally infected its finding of discriminatory intent. And when the finding crumbles, the preliminary injunction falls with it, which was the injunction was keeping us from using uh, ID. The district court penalized the General Assembly because of who they were instead of what they did. That's a great comment. That's exactly correct. The district court argument also overlooked the state constitutional amendment. 55% of North Carolinian voters constitutionally required uh, the enactment of a voter ID law and designated to the General Assembly the task of enacting the law. Right. We all went to the polls and 55% of us said we want voter ID and we want the General Assembly to craft a law to make it so. And then this judge said, nuh-uh, I think they're racist. The sequence of events leading to enactment, legislative history, and disparate impact cannot support finding discriminatory intent, they said. Also, whatever one thinks of the weight of bipartisanship, the district court erred in discounting uh, that State Senator Joel Ford, black Democrat primary bill sponsor, um, and other Democrats supported the bill. Yeah, you, you don't just get to ignore that. This was one of the biggest beefs I had with the arguments that they were making against this law. It was like, you realize that you're saying that, th that this disenfranchises black people, and yet you've got a black sponsor of the bill, Joel Ford. Do you think he's trying to disenfranchise his fellow African Americans? It doesn't make any sense. We, res, uh, we reverse because of the, this is the final quote here from the, uh, the ruling. We reverse because of the fundamental legal errors that permeate the opinion, the flipping of the burden of proof and the failure to provide the presumption of legislative good faith that irrevocably affected its outcome. So there you go. Those were the highlights presented by the uh, Senate leader, Phil Berger. His comms team sent those out. Uh, also, here's an update after a recount. Paul Newby leads Sherry Beasley in the race for the North Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice. He is up by 401 votes. <laughs> 401. I think there's like over 5 million votes cast, and he's up by 401 votes. And uh, in the last recount that they just did, uh, he lost like five votes or something like that. But now they're done. 
except because it's within a 3% margin, the loser gets to challenge and ask for a hand-to-eye recount. So that's what Sherry Beasley has done, seeking a hand-to-eye recount. And by the way, I don't have any problem with this. This is what the law allows, so let her do it and let them see what they find. Now, how this works is they pull a small batch of votes from all over the place and in the ballots and stuff, and they, they, they hand-to-eye, right, look at them and count them up. And if the samples indicate that there is some sort of a, a problem, some egregious error that could lead to some sort of a change, then they would do a full hand-to-eye recount of all the ballots across the state. That's how that would work. So that's where we are in the process. It's still not over, but it's almost over. But still not over, but not yet. Anita Earls, one of the Supreme Court justices, she was um, elected, what, two years ago, I guess it was? Or maybe, yeah, I think it was two years ago. She was the founder of the, what was it, the Social Co- or the Coalition for Social Justice, Southern Coalition for Social Justice. It's a, it is what it sounds like. It's a leftist organization. And uh, she's the one who ran in the race against Barbara Jackson, the incumbent Republican chief or uh, uh, Supreme Court justice, associate justice. And uh, then you had that uh, idiot uh, lawyer who you know pretends to be a Republican, runs in order to siphon votes away from Barbara Jackson. Uh, the guy's name was Chris Anglin, you know, Democrat for a bunch of years, and then switches his uh, uh, his voter affiliation to Republican so he can run as a Republican on the ballot. And Barbara Jackson loses. Anita Earls wins. And now, get this, somebody registered a whole bunch of websites. <laughs> I don't know who it is. Nobody has nobody has claimed them yet, as far as I know. But there's a bunch of them. Anita Earls for Senate.com. Earls for Senate.com. Earls for US Senate.com. Uh, Earls for US Senate. There you go. So a whole bunch of variations on her name and US Senate. So it sounds like one of our Supreme Court justices is going to be running for the US Senate. Interesting. That's an interesting move, don't you think? I'm not aware of anybody else that's ever done that sort of a thing. Go from the bench to a political office like that. I'm not saying it hasn't occurred. I'm just not aware of anybody that's ever done it. I know she was a lawyer first, and that's one of the things that always kind of kills me about uh, a lot of the reverence for judges. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I have total reverence for judges when I'm in their courtroom. (laughs) I mean, that's just smart, you know. Um, But... This idea that they're, I mean, they, yes, you could be a good judge, just like you can be a good lawyer. You could be a good podcaster, but um, you don't automatically, just because you win an election and then get a black robe, you don't automatically, you know, deserve some sort of deference and respectability that you, oh, this person knows what they're talking about. I've seen some pretty bad judges in my lifetime, okay? Some of them in North Carolina. There are a bunch of examples. Uh, I'm not going to go into them, but uh, the idea that you would then take off the black robe and make a run for a U.S. Senate seat, a political post. Now, this is interesting. Will she actually resign her seat on the Supreme Court? Would she do that in order to run for U.S. Senate in 2022? This is going to be Richard Burr's seat that he's in right now, and it's going to be open. And so you got a bunch of Republicans like uh, what Mark Walker has already announced that he's uh, going to run. You've got uh, the one named Lara Lee Trump is floated around as a potential uh, candidate. Pat McCrory is a potential candidate, the former governor of North Carolina. Dan Forrest is a potential candidate. So we'll see. Uh, over on the Democratic side, I think you're going to have, uh, what, State Senator Jeff Jackson. I think he's probably going to throw his, his uh, hat in the ring or I guess his name in the hat and then the hat in the ring, I think is how that goes. Um, yeah, and so the, and uh, I think Erica Smith might make another run. She ran last time, but then Chuck Schumer got involved and, you know, stiff-armed her, uh, stiff-armed her out of the race. So um, I, I don't think, um, just, just a guess here, but I don't think Cal Cunningham is going to run again. I think we've probably seen the last of him. Uh, but Anita Earls, interesting. Is she going to continue to be a chief, ju- or I keep saying that, a, a Supreme Court associate justice? Is she still going to stay on the state Supreme Court while running for a political office for U.S. Senate? I don't know. It just it seems like there might there might be some conflicts there. Although it would provide her a whole bunch of you know ways to dodge questions. Well, that might be a future case, so I don't want to answer that question. Here's a question that I will answer every time it's asked of me. 
I got my mattress at Mattress Man. It's true. People say, hey, Pete, that's a great mattress. Where'd you get it? Mattress Man. Hey, Pete, do you know where I can get a good mattress? I do. Mattress Man. See, that's how that happens. That's like an actual reenactment. So mattressmanstores.com, that's the website. They have four locations in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. I went to the one on Tunnel Road and... uh, uh, well, they have two locations, actually, on Tunnel Road. I went to the um, the one not at the Innsbruck Mall, the one across from the Asheville Mall, and I went there, and I was like, I need to get a mattress, and Christy and I wanted a king size. We had never had a memory foam mattress before, and we laid on that thing, and we're like, this is like laying on a marshmallow. And so we got it, and we love it, and we've had it for like eight years now. Uh, you can get your next mattress at Mattress Man simply by going to their store or going to their website and get the triple zero financing deal, zero down, Zero APR for 24 months, so no interest for two years. Zero payments for 90 days. You can't lose. Uh, They also have a free box spring with the purchase of a Biltmore mattress, and they've got a free adjustable base with the purchase of select mattresses as well. That comes with a wireless remote. Some of them even work with your smartphone. So you could be like tweeting while you're in bed and like raise the feet, raise the head of the bed. It's fantastic. If you need more, you know, blood flow going more, maybe you need to like drain some of the blood out of your head because you're on Twitter at, you know, 3 a.m. Anyway, um, get a queen-sized gel hybrid bed in a box for just $2.99. This is one of their grab-and-go deals where if you just pull up to their warehouse, you can grab and go. $2.99 for a queen-size mattress. That is, And it's a gel hybrid mattress. It's a fantastic deal. Go check them out, mattressmanstores.com. Experience the difference. They have a 120-day comfort guarantee, five-star local delivery service, and they ship nationwide. Mattressman, mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. Did you hear last weekend there was the rumor that Governor Roy Cooper's daughter had a wedding? Um, Yeah, supposedly at the Biltmore. Did you hear this rumor? Some people wondered on social media whether there was a large wedding for one of Cooper's daughters, which may have been in violation of the governor's coronavirus restrictions. Uh, So uh, the other day, Cooper's spokesperson Sadie Weiner tweeted that the rumor is false. Cooper's office also confirmed that there was no wedding this past weekend of any size. Cooper and his wife, Kristen Cooper, have three grown daughters. Cooper's daughter, Claire Cooper, is engaged, and the state's phase three restrictions limit indoor gatherings to 10 people, outdoor gatherings to 25 people. The requirements do not apply to worship, religious gatherings, funeral ceremonies, and wedding ceremonies, though. But people are still asked to follow social distancing and mask guidelines. There are capacity limits for event and reception spaces. According to Cooper's Phase 3 plan, 30% capacity or 100 people, whichever is less. This is the story by Dawn Vaughn at the News and Observer. Uh, Claire Cooper took to the Facebook and said, Dear conservative who started the rumor that I got married at the Biltmore last weekend with 500 guests. Zach Cook and I are way too introverted for a big wedding and not basic enough for the Biltmore. If you want to make things more believable, you could have gone with like 150 people in Hobbiton or something. In other news, I'm super excited to marry my lovely fiancé in the distant future when it's safe. So she just called the Biltmore basic. Anybody who's got a wedding at the Biltmore is basic. You know what basic means? It's a slang term used to describe women who are perceived to prefer mainstream products, trends, and music. So that's what she considers women who want to get married at the Biltmore. That is, did you know that getting married at the Biltmore estate is a mainstream product, trend, or music? Uh, Not music, but trend. That's a mainstream thing. Really? Married at the Biltmore. I think it's pretty exclusive. I've actually been to a wedding at the Biltmore. Um, I I wouldn't consider it mainstream or basic, but what do I know? At least she didn't do what her mom did, though, Claire Cooper. You know, flip off a bunch of kids on the side of the road during a protest. At least she just went to the Facebook and said that instead to just insult the Biltmore estate and everybody who's ever gotten married there. Good look. That's a wrap for this episode. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast and uh, think about becoming a patron. We'll talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.